Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I provide online divorce, valuation, and mediation services in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we will discuss divorce finances, tracing marital assets and separate property with Beth Garrett and Bob Boyd. Bob Boyd is a family law attorney in Atlanta, Georgia, and co-founder of Boyd, Collar, Nolan, Tuggle, and Roddenberry. Bob is a leader in family law who has received recognition from his colleagues across Georgia and the nation for his work in high net worth divorce litigation and contested custody cases. Beth Garrett is a lawyer and accountant in Atlanta, Georgia. She's also a partner in the divorce litigation support practice at Frazier and Dieter, primarily assisting high net worth individuals and corporate executives with divorce, tax, and accounting issues. She helps people through mediation and works with divorce, divorce lawyers through all financial aspects of litigation and child support matters. She's also a valuation expert and has a credential. Welcome, Beth and Bob. How are you? Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, this has been a very, you know, this is kind of getting into a little bit of a nuanced area in divorce. And it's really kind of one of the more complex is how are you figuring out what parties had when they came into the marriage? And if it's a, still a separate asset, or did everything get smushed together and is now a marital property? But I think that first getting into this is really trying to understand, you know, like, is there even a difference? Like, what's the difference between separate and marital property and divorce? And how can even somebody say, you know, after a 20 year marriage that they even had any property that was, uh, you know, claimed to be separate? So I don't know who we want to start off with. Maybe the, the, our, our super accountant lawyer, <laughs> Uh, valuation person, but can you kind of give us an idea of what the difference is? Yeah, I'm happy to start start off. Um, I think this is a lot of times you would think it would be an introduction question that people might first have on their minds, but it also sometimes creeps up later on that we'll be at mediation and someone says, oh, I had that account long before I got married and that's not ideal. So hopefully that's something we can address earlier. But the idea is that with separate property, if it's something that you either had prior to the marriage or inherited or were gifted during the marriage, it wouldn't be considered for division. It's pulled out of the estate um, and it's not something that when we're talking about property division that it's going to be um, divided that you would share with. So that's why it's important is a lot of people want to take that off the top. Um, and I think it is something that the length of time definitely can complicate matters. But um, just because it's been a long time doesn't mean that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, I think that's another area of confusion that I was just talking to somebody about yesterday is they say, well, I, I had this account when I got married and this is what it was worth. So that should come off the top right now. Um, and that can go two ways. It's either, no, it's actually could have grown a lot. So it could be a lot more. Or does that account even exist anymore? Did you spend it? Is it gone? So that's kind of where we have to start digging in um, to figure out what is separate and what is marital. And the claim to separate property really, and the difference between separate and marital really does, is kind of a legal issue, right? You know, so there's stuff that we can do, but Bob, tell us more about like the legal difference between separate and marital and how can somebody claim that they have separate property? Well, in, in I think it's important to kind of recognize that marital property uh, is anything that you acquire during your marriage. Maybe, and I, I tell people when we discuss it with, with clients that it's something, anything you earn by the sweat of your brow is in all likelihood going to be marital property. Uh, title doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is how the asset was acquired. And I usually give the example of a 401k plan. That's going to only be in the name of the uh, employee. It's going to be earned during the marriage. And even though it's titled in that sole name, um, it's going to be considered marital property and subject to division. Uh, so I think that's important to note. Now, 
sort of in an opposite way of looking at it, title can become very important with separate property because Beth's job becomes much easier if someone has maintained the integrity of an asset during the marriage by first keeping it titled in their sole name and second, not commingling it with money that's been earned during the marriage. You can, uh, at least in some states, Georgia being one of them, you can severely compromise or even lose your claim to separate property if you make the mistake of putting it in joint names. So title can be, you, you have to be cognizant of the idea of title when you're doing this analysis. Well, and, and realistically, what people most of the time would be able to understand separate property would be like an inheritance. Or sometimes people are even discussing like the engagement ring. It was that a gift, you know, was it not a gift? Um, things like that. But I think another just issue that we don't necessarily identify marital and separate property in all states, right? So the, another issue, and, and what we're going to do is kind of lay the foundation of some of these issues, and then we're going to talk about some of the nuances in them, because again, people getting divorced don't always know that these are issues, right? And so it's really first, what are the, you know, like, so another difference is that divorce is state specific, and so what are the differences between community property states, and maybe we need to define that, and equitable distribution states for diverse, divorce purposes? Well, you, you want me to take that one, Beth? Yeah. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's important to say at the outset, there are only nine states out of 50 that are true community property states. Uh, there are three that are a little hybrid, but all the rest are uh, either considered what they call common law or equitable division states. Now, uh, to, you know, if, if you're looking for a definition of community property, basically uh, what they do in those situations are that any assets that are acquired during the marriage are divided 50-50. It's pretty simple. Uh, and some states also have the added uh, kicker that it, it also means assets you acquired during the marriage while you were domiciled in that state. Okay, uh, assets that were that you had before the marriage, or this, this is interesting, or that you acquired after you separated, mm. are, are considered as community property. Gifts, or, gifts and inheritance are not considered community property. So uh, community property came about because uh, these states thought it would cut down on the conflict in, uh, in a divorce. Yeah, simple. Uh, contrast that with equitable division. And uh, we've sort of talked about that in the first question, that it's uh, anything that you've acquired during the marriage is going to be subject to equitable division, not necessarily 50-50, but what parties agree is fair or a judge or a jury determines is fair. Uh, just like community property, premarital assets are not included, uh, gifts and inheritance not included. Now, interestingly, and this is very state-specific, you remember I said that in a... Uh, community property state, uh, anything that you acquire after you separate is not subject to division. States, uh, the equitable division states differ on that. For example, in Georgia, the merit there, there's a case that defines very clearly the marital estate accrues until the date of divorce. And that can cause a lot of consternation if you've had people uh, separated for a long time. I mean, I just served as an arbitrator in a case where Beth, was it seven years they'd been separated? I think so. Four. It was, it was a long time. They'd been mm -hmm. separated. And the, and the husband had acquired a lot of assets in that period of time. And he was trying to make the argument that they shouldn't even be on the table. So 
that definition in any state becomes important as to when the marital estate accrues. Well, and and before kind of we we go more into that, the the reality is every state is different. Every state deals with the date of separation, the date of filing, the date of divorce. All of those dates could have different meanings mm -hmm. to them. And so, you know, like we're trying to give big picture, but it's really important to understand the nuances of your state. And right now we're kind of talking about Georgia or Missouri, Illinois kind of area, but there's a whole bunch of more out there. Um, and, and the reality is, you know, just splitting everything 50-50 isn't necessarily going to solve it because everybody feels like their case is unique, right? And so there's unique situation why it should not be 50-50, um, including some of these assets. Do you have anything else to kind of talk about, uh, about the difference between community property states and equitable distribution, Beth? I would just highlight that in every case that the differences are in the marital estate and what that's going to look like and what that's how that's going to be divided. But separate property is considered always. So this what we're talking about today is going to be important, whether you're in community property or equitable division state, figuring out what your separate estate is so that that gets carved out. Um, well, and I think that a lot of times when I start talking to, you know, spouses, either together or separate. Um, they, they kind of go into, well, I had this, I had this house, I had this boat, I had this, um, 401k, I had this before the marriage. So we just ignore it and, and we just put it over on the side. We don't need to put any value on it. We don't need to look at anything like that's mine. Go, go away. Right. But that's not really how it works. Mm -hmm. And so what is actually, and, and, and we call it tracing assets, right? So probably people haven't heard that term either, but what is involved in tracing the assets and in, you know, maybe we'll talk about marital contribution as well, but like, let's just start there. Like, can't I just say, listen, I had this house, I had this account before I was married um, we don't have to worry about it. Can we just call it separate? Like what's wrong with that? Because it's very, very, very unlikely. And I've never seen this where you just have this account. I won't say never, but, and it just hasn't been touched in the entire length of your marriage that it literally just sat there and grew or didn't grow, just kind of sat there or the car or the boat or whatever. Now in some of the short-term marriages, I do have some of that, but um, in a longer term marriage, if it's a 401k and a job that you've continued to work in, then you've continued to contribute to it during the marriage. And that's going to commingle it. That's another word that we say all the time when we're the reason we have to trace things is because they've been commingled. They've been combined. There's some separate property in the account and there's some marital property. Um, and we see that in retirement. We see that in houses. We see that in investment accounts, um, most everything. Um, I think the one of the hardest things kind of for people to swallow when we meet with clients is, well, we I hear all the time, we kept all of our finances separate. We have all separate accounts. Well, that separate is different than the separate that we're going to start talking about because you were married, you are married. And so just because it, like Bob was saying earlier, the titling just like if you jointly title something, it can be in jeopardy. Well, just because you left it in your own name doesn't mean that it's automatically separate. So that's why we do have to look at, at what happened during the marriage. Right. And, and I think that, you know, from a tracing the asset standpoint, from a legal standpoint, Bob, though, like, I'm telling you it's separate. <laughs> why can't you just, you're my attorney, go tell them that it's separate. Like, what's the problem? I don't see a problem here. Well, we might tell them it's separate, but uh, if they're not buying that, they're going to hire Beth and she's going to see all the, the accounts from the beginning of time. And uh, she's going to show how with this asset that I came into the marriage with, I started putting 10% of my, uh, take home pay into it every month that I was working and it's doubled because I've been adding to it during the marriage. 
and she's going to shake her finger. Au contraire, it is not separate property. And, um, you know, clients don't like it, but that's just when you have to explain this is what the law is. And um, I wish you would have talked to me earlier about what you're doing with your account. Well, and I think that that's part of it is prenup can fix a prenup. Yeah. Prenup can fix that. If, if prenup is probably going to say title controls. So if I've kept an account in my sole name, even if I've added money to it from my earnings during the marriage, it's still going to be my separate property. Now that's a good point. So, so let me just break it down because those are a lot of words that I don't know if people totally understand, but literally if you, you like you could put together a prenup that would say, however, these accounts, whatever names these accounts are in is what's going to control who owns those accounts, the life of the marriage. Mm-hmm. That is including huge. appreciation, uh, everything else. That's that's probably the most common prenup that we do in my office. We call it the title controls prenup. OK, I love it. And and. But, but why is that? Because I think that that does get confu- a little confusing with couples because just like Beth said, well, I have a joint account and I have separate accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, Beth, from that standpoint, you know, let's go back to my, I, I received $100,000 of inheritance, okay? And I put it in an account with my name prior to marriage and and I invested it. Now, what does it matter? Now that account's 150,000. What does it matter? Because it's mine. It's 150,000. It's all on my side. What, why does the difference between income and appreciation matter at all? Like it should just be 150 is mine. Break it down why that is, could potentially not be true. Well, in the situation specifically you described, I would say the 150 is yours because if it's just sat there um, and that's where we talk about active appreciation versus passive appreciation. So your income, if, if the reason it grew from 100 to 150 is because you were depositing your paycheck into it once a month or an extra amount from your paycheck, that's active appreciation. Your efforts are the reason that that account grew. If it's a stock in a company that just happened to grow, a publicly traded company that you don't have any ownership in, to be very specific, that just happened to grow while you were married, then you had nothing to do with that. And that would be passive appreciation. So dividends that you earn on stock like that, that continues to be passive. So I'll tell people prenups can be great and prenups can help with keeping separate property clear. I've also had many cases where people spent all the time and money to draft a prenup and then completely ignored everything it said to do. So I end up tracing all the accounts anyway. So if you have separate property and you put it in an account off to the side, once you get married, you should never add money to that account. You can open a new account and that's where your marital earnings and your marital savings can go can can go into. But that separate account, as long as you don't add anything to it, it doesn't get commingled. It stays completely separate. You can also spend from that account. You can take money out of it. And that thing in your mind, you're contributing that to the marriage. But it's when you start taking an inheritance that you got or or pre-marriage, it doesn't have to be an inheritance, anything that you had prior to the marriage and adding to it. That's when you commingle things, and that's when I have to get involved. Um, and as a footnote to what Beth just said, and it is a great point that comes up all the time. Somebody comes into a marriage with a separate account. They keep it separate. They rock along, and then all of a sudden, um, somebody needs something. And uh, the best place to get the cash is from this separate account. And so they pull the cash from that separate account, buy the asset, whatever they want to do. It is very common for that person when they get divorced to come back and say, hey, I want that money back. I'm entitled to it. That was my separate property. I should get that back. I tell them that's nice, 
we can ask, but you're going to lose that argument. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've got, I've tried that issue many times in front of a judge, in front of a jury, and it never wins. I've never seen it win. Let me put it like that. Well, and let's la add one little layer onto that. So we needed $20,000 to buy something, or we needed $20,000 to just cash flow, right? Just pay the bills that month. But the next month, I'm going to get a bonus. So I'm going to take that $20,000 bonus, and I'm going to put it back into that separate account. Any issues with that? I think that's nuanced. And I think that's where we start to the reason we have experts on opposing experts, and we, we have differing things. There's um, I know in Georgia specifically, so when we start to talk about tracing and how we do tracing, um, there's a couple different ways that you can do it. And we don't have a very clear either statute or case law that says this is how you trace a bank account. Mm -hmm. So there's several different methods of doing it. And I think there's some that are more accepted than others, but um, there's not a hard and fast, this is how you do it. So in your example, the most common tracing that I would do is pro rata tracing. So that's where if I have $50 in a bank account that's separate and I add $50 to that bank account, I would then say that that account is 50% separate and 50% marital. If you then spend $50 from it, I would take it out 50% separate and 50% marital. So you don't say I spend, all, oh, obviously I spent all the marital money first and I wouldn't have touched my separate property. Well, then you should have put it in, a, you shouldn't have put them in the same bank account is kind of what we say. Um, but I think there's another, there's a specific situation that people would talk about called parking. And I think that in your examples is a little bit the opposite of parking. But I think if you, took $20,000 out and two days later, you put exactly $20,000 back in. If I'm working for that client, I'm going to try to make that argument that yes, they just repaid the separate property. That was obviously the intention. Where it gets muddied is if you took $20,000 out and then six months later, you put 10,000 in, another six months later, you put 15,000 in, where it's not that clear in out, that argument gets harder and harder to make. Um, but you think that it gets harder to make too, if you pull that money out, park it in a joint account, joint account, and then try to bring it back in. Right. Is it still separate or now have you tainted the whole thing? Absolutely. And that's where my tracings that I have spreadsheets that are linked to six different bank accounts and I'm tracking the percentages and trying to find all that. Um, yeah, that's where it starts to get really complicated because especially because as as we've mentioned a couple times already, we have some very specific cases in Georgia that say as soon as you title something jointly, the presumption is that it's marital. Mm -hmm. So if it's in a bank account for a day or 10 years, if it's jointly titled, it's presumed to be marital. So we have to make see if we can make an argument otherwise or if it makes sense otherwise. Um, we get a, we get nuanced in our language. We talk about source of funds rather than separate, which really mean the same thing. But as you pointed out at the very beginning, separate is more of a legal conclusion, whereas source of funds we've nuanced into this more accounting term. Um, so that's, that's, that's a perfect segue no. because I feel like we do need to talk about source of funds. But one thing that I will say is that, you know, until we kind of define a little bit, one thing that I just will say real quick is that when you're looking at the 100,000 goes into the bank, nobody touches it. It's now 150, right? Like now in the state of Georgia, it might all be separate in the state of Missouri or other states, we still might have a portion of that increase in value. Is it appreciation or is it interest in income? So we still might delineate that, even that portion. Um, you know, but the interesting piece is the clearer and the cleaner the issue is, you don't have as many hurdles to go over in court. The more you start creating some sort of convoluted issue of money coming in and money coming out, and 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 the reality is that's what everybody does mm -hmm. because we don't plan to get divorced when we get married. You know, we just plan to be married and happy. 
Um, so we're not protecting anything at that point. Um, but when we come into these issues, we're now just creating bigger stumbling blocks and hurdles that we're going to have to go over in order to prove it in the court. And the court would be like, well, maybe I'll take a little bit as me. Oh, that's not fair. You know, like you have too many assets and things like that, but we won't, we won't start talking about that just yet because I think one layer in this is the source of funds, which again is probably a term that people are not aware of until they go through a divorce. But why is the source of funds rule important in a tracing analysis? And does it matter? You know, like you've already talked a little bit about the property titled, mm -hmm. but tell us what the source of funds even means. So I think one of the reasons that that when we talk about equitable division, that Georgia is an equitable division state, not equal. So and that's the whole reason that we have this argument, because, yes, so we've talked about how important titling is and that once something is jointly titled, it's considered marital property. But when you were getting into a little bit about is it fair, that's where we would start to continue. Even if it's jointly titled, a lot of times we're going to continue to make the argument that it's the source of the funds is separate property. So we've taken this hard and fast term of separate property and kind of morphed it into this source of funds idea where you say, well, you know, all of this property came from my separate funds. It might have been jointly titled, but it wouldn't be fair, equitable to divide it equally. So therefore, even though it's marital, I should still get it. And we try to carve it out that way. Um, that would be, Bob, is that? Would that that's be I mean, that's exactly what happens is that you've created marital property, just as Beth said, but then uh, when you get in front of the court, you get in the courtroom, that's when you make the argument that I should get credit for this source of funds in, in Georgia and, and in other states as well. We've got case law to support that, that source of funds is uh, uh, a proper analysis to put forth as to, to make, to justify a claim for separate property. Typically, this happens with a house. Mm -hmm. for us. That's the most common place that you see it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think that, you know, that kind of does, does lead us a little bit because a lot of um, you know, a lot of these assets that we're trying to figure out what we can trace, you know, can we trace a house? Because I think you get into uh, a house may not be an issue in a long-term marriage, but it could be a, a significant issue in a second marriage, in a marriage that somebody's getting later in life. I mean, even right now, you know, for the most part, over the past decades, so many decades, the age to get married get, keeps on going beyond, you know, so when we're getting up to our 30s and in our 30s and 40s and getting married at that point, we have collected these assets at that point, right? And so we talked about a house. So, I mean, the house is a perfect example. I, I come into to a house, it's a $300,000 house, okay, we're going to, keep easy again. And a hundred thousand dollars is how much I had in equity coming into the marriage. Right. And, and maybe I kept it set. I still kept it titled in my name. We didn't refinance. We didn't, let's make it really simple. Right. But we've been married for 10 years. And, and what, what am I concerned about at that point? Well, that's the money's all coming in. That's marital. Tell you. Beth's going to tell you what happens because that those are the facts of the most famous case in Georgia on source of funds called Thomas v. Thomas. And what you described were the exact facts in that case. And so the issue is that the, mor the mortgage has been paid down for the last 10 years and it's been paid down likely with income. Um, so in, to carry your example out, if, it, if there was a hundred thousand um, that was of equity at the time of the marriage, then we would say that it was a third. Well, at that point, it would be 100% marital. But as you pay down the marriage, as you pay down the mortgage, let's say $100,000 is paid down. Now it's become 50-50 because there was $100,000 equity to begin with, $100,000 um, of mortgage pay down. And then if there's been appreciation on the house, 
that appreciation would be allocated both to the premarital, the separate portion, and also to the marital portion. So we it's and that's the case. We actually do have case law there that it says it should be allocated pro rata. Um, obviously, it gets hard there with a house because in 10 years, the appreciation is not necessarily rateable every year. It might dip down, it might go up, but for the most part, everyone looks at sort of this overarching umbrella of the total pay down of the mortgage, the total equity at the beginning, and then the appreciation. Um, we could also look at if there's been renovations and where that money's come from and did that those renovations increase the um, the value, do they increase the value of the house? Um, so those are all things that we look at, but yes, we call it a Thomas analysis. That's sort of the, um, just colloquial term that came from this case law that we use. Well, and I think that, you know, in looking at some of the issues with that particular, um, situation is that, sorry. Okay. Sorry. That's fine. We can we can edit it. Yeah, okay, so on the screen. I don't know what, what it was. <laughs> so if if we're looking at the same example, okay, so we have the house, and now I had a hundred thousand dollars coming into the marriage, and then we we had a marital contribution of a hundred thousand of equity. I get to put my hundred thousand off the table, right? And so now we're just have this other hundred that we're kind of splitting between us do does the judge have to split it 50 50 no <laughs> I, I agree no it's well if it's not community property i mean if it's equal division state no they can do whatever they want mm -hmm. and i think that this is important because I think that a lot of high net worth individuals come in with a lot of assets. And sometimes we will see judges say, well, you know, you have all these separate assets out there. Maybe we'll give your spouse a little bit more of the marital assets. Have you guys seen that happen in Georgia courts as well? I've seen it happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that you have to be open to the fact that this tracing isn't um, always specific, right? And two people can trace the same assets and come up with vastly different values sometimes, right? Yeah, and, well, even, and even if we have the same values, I think that's where the equitable gets so important because like what you were saying, if the more we carve out and make separate, let's say it's a, $15 million estate, and I'm able to prove absolutely not even source of funds, but that 12 million of that is one party's separate property. So we're left with a $3 million estate. I, the chances are not great that a judge is going to give each party 1.5 million so that one person's walking away with 13.5 and the other person's walking away with 1.5. Now, if it's a three-year marriage, yes, then the chances get higher that that's the case. But if it's a 20 or 30-year marriage, I think there's a, there's a possibility that the party without the separate property gets most of the marital estate. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those are all very important. That is, that is the big difference with community property and equitable division, because obviously in community property, you're getting 1.5. Right. And I mean, even in that type of situation, we've had cases where, um, you know, the judge always has discretion and that's what you have to remember. You know, there isn't, we can't predict what a judge is going to do, um, but we can certainly, we know that judges will sometimes look at, well, you have a lot of assets. You know, we had a situation where a party came in with 4 million of uh, equities and the other party came in with 40,000. And, you know, the judge um, in mediation was saying, you know, I, I mean, I, th I think, you know, th they should at least get a million. And we were like, what basis? Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, that's what you have to be mindful of is, is when it starts getting convoluted, 
the judges might just default to like, oh, well, you know, you got a lot. We'll, we'll move some over to here. But when we're when we're really going to court, who has the, you know, like if I just want let, to let's go back to my same example. Like I have this separate stuff, Bob, just to go tell them. Uh, it's just separate. Like tell them they need to prove that it's not separate. Like, is that how this works or who really has to prove that it's separate? Well, it's actually just the opposite. If you're asserting, if you're making a claim that you have separate assets, you have the burden of proof of establishing that. And that's where I call Beth and say, got something you need to do. And, uh, that's what that's what her her role one of her primary roles becomes is to prove it separate. I would add though that more and more I think and we have we have a couple cases in Georgia where the only evidence that was introduced is one party saying it's my separate because I say it's my separate and the judge was like that's all I've got to go on so I'm going to say that it's separate. So you that I get called just as much on the other side that says they're claiming all this is separate and we don't think they're going to do anything about it, but we can't take the chance that we're going to go to court and that's all they have to go on. So we need you to prove it's marital. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely the burden of proof is yours to prove that it's separate, but um, we're going to be prepared on the other side. Yeah. And so if I can clearly show or not even clearly, if I have to do a ton of work to show that it is absolutely not separate, um, we're going to, we're going to do that. Yeah, um, she's right. I mean, in reality, we're not going to walk into a mediation or into the courtroom, uh, not having looked into the, as the person trying to defeat the separate property claim, we're not going to walk in just hoping the judge enforces the legal burden of proof. We're going to be there ready to say, here's why it's not separate. Right. Well, and even I've been involved in cases where, you know, we proved the separate or marital nature of the the assets or the investments, mm -hmm. and they would just testify. They're like, you know what? And even the party could testify and say, judge, I had it when we got married. And, you know, I don't think that that is really good proof. But again, in a courtroom, just from my experience, it doesn't necessarily matter if everybody has done it the exact proper way. And I think that's the frustrating mm -hmm. part is that, you know, you can do it the exact proper way that you feel is very relevant and, and looking at all the information. And the other side could just like, well, here's a statement from 1955 that says that there was three shares of this. And you're like, what does this even prove? Right. <clears throat> but if we're looking at some of that information that you would need to document it, first of all, you need to go back and see if you have any statements prior to marriage or at the same time of marriage, right? Um, or if you can get them, because sometimes it's not easy to get from the institutions or it's switched, you know, if you have something that's switched accounts so many times, mm -hmm. that's going to, you know, like that's going to get costly to trace. But are there even some important dates that we need to keep in mind when tracing these assets, like date of filing, date of marriage, date of se separation? You know, what becomes important that people need to know to get prepared, even to prove out that some portion is separate? Definitely date of marriage. That's definitely where it would start. Um, I was talking to somebody today that was married in 2010, and he's going on and on about that he had this account that in 1998, and then he put it into this account in 2003. And I was like, you're making it more complicated than you need to. Let's start at 2010. I don't need to go anywhere before that. I mean, sometimes if that's all you have, you might have to, but um, definitely starting with date of marriage. And I think what's hard to another thing with when people are just like, it's separate, it's separate, just date of marriage is very rarely, if ever enough. I need, I need to know what happened to it in between. So whether it's annual statements, monthly statements, whatever you can get your hands on all throughout the marriage. Um, and then like Bob explained, we're updating it until the date, until the date of divorce. So um, we're continually um, adjusting it and updating statements monthly or bi-monthly whenever we can get something scheduled. Um, 
but I'm sure, but I, as, as you mentioned, I know New Jersey and I know there's several other cases where date of separation or date of filing is what's most important. That's mm -hmm. when everything kind of stops. Um, so a lot of people look at that, but then at the same time, you still have to continue to look at what happened after the date of separation, because if there's an account that had a hundred thousand dollars in it at the date of filing and now it's gone, you still, you can't just divide it as of the date of filing because now you have to deal with reality. So it's always going to continue to be important. Well, and I think even from the separate nature of it, the more we can have, you know, a statement right prior to the marriage, um, you know, at a minimum, I think even year end statements will give a lot of details because sometimes in these big marriages, um, you know, you at least want to start with a year end, like we kind of take it in phases. I think Beth does as well. Like you don't go every granular level first. You kind of like big picture what portion of this is separate. Um, but even in tracing like an investment, right. And the, and the logic behind tracing an investment and how we do it. Um, I think it is, you know, we're starting with that, that statement, and then you're having to look at it over the course of time, you know? So in, in that particular situation, it, is it necessary to have every monthly statement? Is it necessary to have every yearly statement? Like it, you know, what if I don't have everything? Like, can you still do some analysis with that? Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the account. So with a retirement account, um, it's it's rare. It, it definitely happens, but it's not common that somebody's taking withdrawals from a retirement account prior to retirement. So hopefully that account has just grown. So we can make some assumptions there that if they had a set amount when they got married and um, it's it's grown, we can at least start with that set amount, I think, unless there have been withdrawals. And there's a lot of different places that you can find out if there were withdrawals, not just the account um, statements. You can look at tax returns. Um, there's forms, the 1099R that comes with the tax return. So there's a couple other things with retirement accounts um, that we can look at. Um, and a lot of times if you are, if you have a 401k and the IRA is your premarital account, you might not have been contributing to that at all during the marriage. So it might be one that literally just kind of sat there. Now it sounds like Melissa, you and I have, you would, you have to do a little more work on that because we do have, it is, I would say established that um, investment in with the exception of the day trader here and there, that that's literally what they do every day, that investment gains and losses and income and, or interest and dividends are passive. Um, so we wouldn't have to segregate out that stuff. I just look at the total growth in the account, whether it came from interest, dividends, capital gains, um, and that's all considered passive. But it sounds like you have to segregate that out a little bit. That Some of that might be marital. Um, would that be on a retirement account also? It is income on separate property is marital. Okay. Appreciation on separate property is still separate. So it, it does get nuanced, but here's the thing. I think people think that this is black and white, right? It's separate, it's marital, that's it. The reality is, unless you have just been, unless you've planned ahead, right? Which we could tell them some ways to plan ahead, but unless you've planned ahead and kept everything very separate and clean, there's gonna be gray, and so you have to put on a position and you have to see how much the documents support the position, right? Or else you're going to falter legally, right, Bob? I mean, I, I can't just put up a position with no underlying documents. And so right. I think that that's the harder thing is like, what if we don't have anything that goes back that far? You know, like how am I tax returns are good. Um, you know, but what are the other options? And there may not be, um, but that's why you have to reach out from that standpoint, because the presumption is going to be that it's marital first, unless you prove otherwise. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, and you talked about planning. I, I've had many conversations 
with fathers whose son or daughter is getting married and they have premarital wealth, but they don't want to do a prenup. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll say, well, how do I protect this, but not do a prenup? And frankly, we talk about the same things that we've talked about here is the paper trail and the don't commingle and uh, be careful what you do with uh, money you take out of the account and how you title it to acquire something, all of those kind of things that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that another thing that we haven't talked about much, we did talk about the Tom's, Thomas case having to do with home ownership in Georgia, but do you know what relevance does other case law or, you know, other cases have in, in the tracing of assets in Georgia um, specifically, is there any other case law that you have to look at? Are we, do we even care about case law? I mean, this is a, this is a new case. We'll just well, do whatever we want. In Georgia, we do have to care about case law because our statutory law governing uh, this this discussion that we're having is very limited. And frankly, all of, pretty much all of the guidance we have, except for some very general statutes on uh, what are the rules governing separate pro- or marital property division, all that, we have to look to case law, at least in our state and in a lot of other states, uh, to get our guidance as to what to do. And I mean, that's where Beth's familiar with the Thomas case. And uh, mm-hmm. there's another case about what Miller that's about goodwill. And uh, mm-hmm. that that's just what we, what we have to rely on. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, go ahead. Well, unfortunately though, we can name most all of the cases, <laughs> but exactly. we don't have a ton of case law. So we yeah. have some really important cases that everybody relies on. Um, but I think other states that are much more prolific in the case law and in what they have coming out, um, it, it can give you more guidance. So I think case law can be really helpful because it gives you guidance. Um, we don't have cases that tell us how to do the tracing, which it, we don't have the guidance, but at the same time, that means that we can make the argument. We can do different things and kind of frame things differently. Um, the titling, that's an area that got hot probably six, seven years ago. And we got this flurry of cases that were all about titling. Um, so that's where that's kind of one of the reasons we've harped on it a lot, because that's that's what we have guidance on. Um, but, yeah, it's very important to be knowledgeable about the cases and know because the judges are reading them and they they know what they what they want to rely on so we have to tell them why why you should rely on it or why you shouldn't and it it, it <clears throat> i think it has changed over the past couple decades because the the analogy that everybody used to use was if the three of us all take a dollar and we put it in a hat right and Beth's dollar is the separate dollar and Bob's dollar is marital and my dollar is marital. And we put all those three dollars into the hat. Then they have been commingled, right? So they've all been put together. We don't know which one's which, but then have they transmuted? So did Beth's dollar transmute into marital money? And it used to be like, if you couldn't, if it was if you couldn't figure it out, it was just all marital. Well, I think the courts have progressed into even accepting some of our hybrid ways of looking at it. So I think that in the past, if you didn't have very clear evidence of separateness, then somebody might've said, "Mm, you're out of luck, right? But now we have a lot of case law that does support this hybrid kind of looking at it, I think mostly because the judges understand and we can all understand, okay, you came in with $2 million. I mean, there should be a portion of that that is still yours, right? Like you didn't contribute it. You didn't, you didn't have, um, maybe one of the things, Bob, that people talk about is that you, it was a gift to the marriage, that, yeah. that it implied when I took that $20,000 out of my separate inheritance and I paid our bills, that there's an implication that I converted that to marital. Isn't that what the court's going to say? Those are, those are the, when I interviewed the 
the jurors in a trial I had on that very subject, that was the word they used. We, we just viewed this as a gift to the marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that also now, because Beth is also a CVA, I do want to just talk about one kind of issue that we've talked about, but we also have these issues if a family business was owned prior to the marriage, right? So mm -hmm. we've talked about valuation of a lot of different assets and property, but what about the business? Like, what are some things that we should be considering? Or is it is it the same as an investment? Well, I would, the only way I would say it's the same is in sort of the terminology that, that we use, but I think the way it manifests itself is very different. So we very, very, very important when we're looking at a business that existed at the time of the marriage already and still exists today is we talk about active versus passive appreciation. Um, and, but the idea is that with passive, it's, it's a lot harder to prove passive appreciation in a business, especially one that you are running or that you own or that you have a very high position in um, than it is in a stock that is just appreciating on the stock market. Um, so that's why at the beginning I delineated a, a, a publicly traded stock because when we're talking about family businesses, where we have to, it's, it gets very subjective and it, there's a lot of factors that we can look at, but um, we want to look at what was the market doing during this time? Is this a product that just got hot and went crazy and the market just was buying it up? Or was there some amazing strategy that the owner had that they are the reason that this company increased in value? And so is did the company just what what is first we would try to figure out what is the increase in value during the marriage so what was the value at the time of the marriage what is the value today then we look at that appreciation and delineate between okay what's passive which might still be premarital and what's active that would have some kind of marital component then it gets further complicated because people um, might argue that the owner has been fully compensated for any active work that they've done. So they've gotten a paycheck every year. They've gotten distributions. Those have all gone towards the marriage. So they've essentially pulled out the active appreciation every year. Um, so I think some of the biggest fights or just um, there, there's always a lot of litigation around this idea of this business and whether it's marital versus separate. Well, and I think that, you know, with the business, the only way that you can kind of understand is that if you have a share of like Apple stock, right? And you have a share of Melissa's valuation company, mm -hmm. right? That share of Apple stock, I'm not doing anything to make Apple go up or down in the shares, right? Um, but I am doing a lot to make Melissa Gregg's valuation company that that go up and down. Right. And so I think that a lot of times, most of the states are trying to delineate that. So they're trying to figure out, and that's where if I have a active part to play in the increase in that value, okay, what does that mean? Um, if I did nothing, what does that mean? And those are all of the, you know, like we've tried to talk about a lot of the issues, but I also think, you know, do you have any other examples where something seemed clear cut and it wasn't, um, you know, or times where you've had kind of parties that thought they understood what was going on, but they didn't have the documentation or anything like that. Um, you know, those are types of, of, you know, we could certainly talk about those stories um, in the context of, you know, at the end of the day, when Beth comes in and she has an analysis for the separate and marital portions of the company, right? And, and Bob comes in and he litigates it. So Bob, is the judge just going to make it fair? And, and I'm going to keep my $2 million of separate assets and we're going to split the 200000 of marital assets. Do you think the judge is just going to say, yep, each one of you has gets $100,000? Well, I think if you've done a good job of presenting your separate property claim, 
most of our judges are pretty good about honoring the separate property. Uh, it's as Beth said, uh, where I think you'll see them deviate are in two places. One, they might uh, award the non-moneyed spouse uh, uh, a greater portion of the marital estate. And two, uh, given the other facts in the marriage and in the divorce, they may also award the spouse some form of alimony, mm -hmm. uh, which can be paid from any source of funds that you have available, marital or separate. Well, and you get bring a good point up, but, but if I have to pay alimony or maintenance, it's not from the income from my separate assets, right? It's just good. Okay. So, and, so and I think that in our state, alimony can be paid from any source of funds you have available. If you're getting money from a trust, that's a source of funds. If you're earning money from separate property, that's a source of funds. And it, and it could be lump sum. I think that's what you're getting mm -hmm. at also, that it could be mm -hmm. just you you need to write a check for $100,000 as lump sum alimony within 30 days. So. Now, in all fairness, I tell the non-moneyed spouse, don't count on it. That's a hard case to win. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, it, you know, we've at least shown that, one, you have to identify the assets Two, you have to identify if there's anything separate. And then three, it's going to be the income on whatever assets you get could determine how much you pay in maintenance or alimony. So they're like all, it's kind of a waterfall effect. Absolutely. You have to do all the stages to then finally get at the end and say, you know, so you'll have clients come in and say, what am I going to have to pay? What am I going to have to pay? And it's like, well, I don't know until we get through the whole, ah, just tell me what I'm going to have to pay. <laughs> what they do. So it's a little bit different, but do you guys have any unique situations that you want to tell us about? Or um, as we kind of look at some of your information on how to reach you and things like that. Um, I would just go back a little bit to some of the surprises that, that when you were talking about how many, how much do you need? Do you really need every single month? I think, um, what I typically find is when I ask for, when I'm trying to just, oh, just give me the year in statements, that always seems to come back to bite me because I'll get the year in statements and then they don't have, they're not really year in, they don't have all the activity for the year. Um, or like I went into pretty great detail on the retirement account, but an investment account is totally different because there's usually lots and lots of ins and outs and it's all during the year. And when you say like, oh, well, I had $2 million when I got married. So don't I just get that now? Well, they're conveniently forgetting that five years into the marriage, that account was at zero and then they built it back up. So that's why I, I do need to see the all the in-between statements because we do have to show not just what you had, but what happened to it all throughout the marriage. Um, I think that's where a lot of the surprises and forgetfulness comes in um, when we start trying to prove these things. Well, and I and, would just add yeah. that to me, the hardest case that I get is when you have a couple that have primarily lived on separate property mm -hmm. and they uh, have a life, uh, they go off and have children and then somebody wants a divorce and the non-moneyed spouse is like, what do you get? Mm -hmm. Particularly if like the house they're living in is owned by a trust and their whole lifestyle has been supported by a trust, mm -hmm. what's she entitled to? Right. That's a hard case. Mm -hmm. Well, because everybody, you know, we, we talk to all of our friends and we talk to our friends and our friends say, well, you need to continue the life that you've been accustomed to. Yeah. So you should be able to still live in a million dollar house. Like, why is it fair? And, and I do joke about the word fair because I think it's every judge, every attorney, everybody thinks that that's the F word in um, in in the court system because it's not what's fair. Right. It's not. 
it's not just because, well, you've led this great lifestyle, so it's fair for us to take a couple million and give it to you so you can continue. That's not how this works. You, you may be talking to people that have had completely different situations. Now, they sound like the same situation to you, but they are completely different. Um, and it, the devil's in the details. These nuances that Beth has talked about are significant. You know, even the funny part that you just said, like a December statement is not the same as a year end statement. For normal people, they're like, what's the difference? You right. know, but those are the types of things that if you have a situation where you had separate assets, if you had anything coming into the marriage, it's probably going to be a little bit more intense analyses than just saying what's mine is mine and and we'll split the rest. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and, and the tracing can get very expensive because it is so detailed. Um, I My joke is that I will have clients come into my office and say, I had $20 when I got married and I want that $20 back and I'm going to pay you $10,000 to find it. <laughs> so uh, I usually try to talk them out of that always, but we're usually talking about significant amounts of money. Um, but it, but it is, it takes a lot of time to do tra tracing. It's very time intensive. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what, that those are com hard conversations we have to have with clients a lot. Yeah. And we haven't really even talked about the fact that most of the time, these are not clear cut. There are deposits and withdrawals coming in and out of mm -hmm. accounts. You know, there are different things that are happening that even the clients don't remember. You know, I mean, we had a, one case that we were doing and there were a couple huge influxes, like 600,000, 800,000. And I was like, what the heck happened? And they're like, oh, yeah, we sold a house or we did this or we did that, you know, um, and they can't always remember. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the other thing is it, it there can't be a reliance just upon verbal testimony, right? Like we have to see the documents. We have to know what actually happened. And the other thing that people don't necessarily realize, because they want to say, well, you know, I had this amount prior to, we've gone through a 2000, you know, in the year 2000, we had a big bust. In the 2008, we had the housing crisis. In, and I always thought when when other people would talk about all these economic issues, like, how do you remember those dates? Oh, now I know. Now I know why I remember those dates. You know, we had a pandemic, you know, so you can't just make those assumptions because the court is going to want something more specific. And that's the issue. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, because if you want them to just come up with a number, I don't know if I like that number. If you can't prove it, they're going to make the presumption that it's marriage. Correct. And that and that's why this is such a big deal. It also to what Beth has said, it you know, you, you really have to talk to a professional and get an idea of what the cost is is going to be entailed in this, because sometimes I'll be like, hey, let's go after your biggest account first and try to prove that out and then look at some of these ancillary accounts, um, because sometimes it, even recently we did one. And, you know, the judge was just like, well, I just don't know how she's going to live. And I'm like, but we, but, but the analysis was, is correct. Like, I mean, this is what it is mm -hmm. and they still have that discretion. So, I mean, a lot of times I think Beth, maybe we're doing the analyses to try to settle the case. And sometimes that's a good idea, Right. Oh, most of the time. Yes. We, I mean, and this goes back to what I said earlier that we don't have a lot of case law. Well, that's because we try, we don't go to court that, I mean, most of our cases settle. It's this never ending circle that we don't have a lot of case law. So therefore you don't want to go to court because we don't know what's going to happen. So therefore we continue to not have case law, but yes, settling is, I spend most of my time in mediation, but I have to do this analysis for mediation as well. So this isn't just for court. This is so that we can get there and we're able to settle because we all have all the facts. We've done all our work and we know what, what the balance sheet looks like, the separate and the marital property. 
And I will even say one last thing, and, and then uh, I think we've given so much information, but the final thing really has to do with the fact that the way we do this work has changed over time with very little case law, case law to dictate how it changes. And so if you think you're just going to find somebody that's going to be able to research how to do this, that's not going to be the case. You know, like I have been doing this for about 20 years. I think Beth, you have a very similar trajectory mm -hmm. this year is the first time that I testified to the hybrid pro rata method in court. But have we been doing it for years and years and years? Have, have I been part of who's, you know, a group that's perfected it in, in our area of how we as experts deal with it, right? Like we are consistent. Right. First right. time in 20 years that I've been able to put forth a case that actually you know, goes towards this. And that's a lot of states, right? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. there's not this like framework of how to do it. You have to merge the law and the finance together and get a good team that understands it because this is a complex situation and you could spend a lot of money and not have a good position at court, which is not the place that you want to be, right? That's right. Well, if uh, I think we've covered almost everything, unless you guys have something else to add, we appreciate all of the information. And um, if people would like to reach out to you, um, I know that uh, for the most part, a lot of professionals will meet with people or take questions and things like that. So I think if you're in Georgia, you know, you should reach out to Beth from a financial. Um, like I said, she's got the credentials for business valuation for finance. And, and she's also an attorney, uh, Bob Boyd, if you have complex financial matters, I think you really need to reach out to Bob um, and his staff mm -hmm. to kind of get a, a framework. So don't just assume that, you know, how to deal with some of these financial issues, you know, it, it, they're different in each state, right? Very much so. Yes. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Um, I'm sure we'll find another topic to talk about some other time, but this is a great one. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. This Thanks, Melissa. Great. Awesome.